Olympics this year, so it'd be great to hear an insight into you know working within the sport. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so first of all, can you just kick off by sort of telling us about your role with the sevens team? Sure. So I'm the doctor for the New Zealand men's and women's sevens teams. Um, and I've been doing that for about two and a half years. Um, originally, a lot of sevens teams just travelled with a physiotherapist and had a doctor back home and doctors at the tournaments and with uh, it becoming an Olympic sport it was decided to have a full-time, well, a doctor assigned to that sport so I don't travel with the teams uh, but I attend their domestic assemblies and, um, or part of their domestic assemblies and um, look after their medical needs and support the physiotherapists who work full-time with each team. Okay. Um, and for listeners who might maybe aren't that familiar with rugby sevens as a you know as a sport, what sort of um, demands are there you know on, on players? So sevens is obviously seven players played on a full size rugby field. Um, <coughs> there's twelve players in each squad, and as of recently, uh, there's revolving subs. So you have less players to cover a large field, so their aerobic demands are huge, they need to be vastly fitter than your average 15s player, as a result of that they're lighter, but at the same time faster and they get up to high speeds and so the impacts are very heavy. So there needs to be a, a mix of a very fit player who can also tolerate a, a true combat sport, not just a contact sport. Um, the games are shorter. Um, but they will play three a day in the tournament mode, so they also need to be able to tolerate turnaround times of two to three hours between those games and play two or three day tournaments. So it's quite a unique um, set of demands on each player. Uh, it makes for an exciting sport to watch because it's speedy and skillful and there's a lot less delays, but um, it means that um, physically they are challenged. Okay, and from a sports medicine point of view, what sort of injuries do you, you know, most commonly see? So uh, we see um, impact, speed impact injuries, which is actually similar to um, 15s, but 7s actually has a higher injury rate than 15s. Um, and so we see a lot of uh, knee injuries, uh, it's a change of direction sport, and so things like ACL injuries, meniscal cartilage, uh, and a lot of shoulders. Shoulders and knees are a big part of it. We see less neck and back injuries than we do in the 15s because we don't have big lumbering forwards. We don't, although we have scrums, they're effectively, they're not uncontested, but the pressures in them are far reduced. Uh, and we see ankles. So it's more the, the limbs rather than the axial skeleton. Okay. And one thing you touched upon was that at these tournaments you said there's you know multiple games per day with often a two to three hour turnaround. How do you get players you know ready to turn around in such a you know, short period of time? So <clears throat> that's both preparation uh, and recovery. So a big part of being able to do that is just being fit. And people who are challenged less by each individual game recover quicker. And so that's why there's always been a huge focus on aerobic fitness. So these players can run and their repetitive running is, is to be seen to be believed really. So they have a gruelling training, uh, to say the least. It takes quite a while for people to actually get their systems used to the demands of Sevens rugby. So over time, you know, the senior players develop an ability to do that repetitive running. And so that's a big part of it, is just that preparation and fitness. Once you're actually in the tournament situation, um, managing player no, uh, although that's harder these days because the, <laughs> whereas there used to be teams who 
uh, possibly you could rest some of your players a bit more, that's harder to do now, so manage your player loaders less, and so then it comes down to recovery. And there's a lot of, um, well, there's a lot of theories around recovery. Um, anyone who's cognizant of sports medicine will realise that in terms of evidence around recovery, that's a different kettle of fish. Um, but certainly there's things that seem to work, and so they're utilised. So, you know, just basics, I think, works pretty well. A lot of stretching, a lot of foam rolling. rolling. Um, we still use uh, ice bars after games, but you can't really prove that that's more effective than contrast uh, or even heat, uh, and really it's what works for each individual athlete. Um, things like uh, um, repetitive icing devices, so we use game readies. Uh, which just, I don't know if you're familiar with those or if the listeners are familiar with, that, with those, but they compress and ice a joint, repeti and ice a joint repetitively automatically. Um, we use uh, compression trousers effectively, so automatic compression devices that slowly that increase drainage out of the legs. It's all that type of stuff. Um, nutrition's a huge part of it. Both teams have dedicated nutritionists. Uh, who look at what they're taking on before and after and, and obviously refuelling is massive and challenging in that environment and so getting your glycogen stored back up you know repetitively um, that's a big part of it as well and it's really about doing the basics well uh, rather than looking for any you know individual um, magic bullet kind of technologies um, and various things have been tried but in the end it's having fit players who do the basics well and that's what allows them to back up. Okay, and you sort of touched on the stuff that these players and the tournaments are held you know, all around the world. As, as a doctor, you said you don't necessarily travel with the team all the time. How do you keep an eye on them um, during the year? Um, so, yeah, they, uh, I mean, they travel with a physio, <clears throat> and uh, you know, it's very easy with electronic communications these days to, um, for the physio to wake you up at any time of night and day if there's a problem, so that occasionally happens. So that I'm in constant communication with those primary medical providers. <clears throat> and then when I actually am hands-on with them is in their domestic camps. So they have an incredibly heavy schedule. They're full-time these days. They didn't used to be. They used to play domestic rugby and try to go 15s to 7s, and that's now stopped, thankfully, because, as I mentioned before, you need different people for 15s and 7s, and they were trying to do both, and it wasn't working. So now when they're full time it means they're actually in camp quite a lot in between the tournaments and I'm there and I can examine them and talk to them and, and maintain it that way. Uh, and also the, like most rugby unions, the New Zealand Rugby Union has a medical system called Rugby Med where all their notes are recorded and um, so I can keep up with stuff that way as well. Okay. And you mentioned that you cover both male and female. Do you see any differences in, in terms of you know, the, um, the demands or even the injuries? Probably that, that difference is lessening. So the male sport has been established for longer and um, there was certainly, when I came into this role two and a half years ago, a very noticeable difference in the professionalism of both squads. The women had come from a background where they were more part-time, there were less people involved who were playing rugby professionally or semi-professionally, in fact there were probably none, whereas now they're fully contracted, they're full-time players. Um, and and they've learned what that means. You know, professionalism is about 24/7 um, maintenance of practice uh, in terms of medical, nutrition, training, whatever it might be. So initially there was a difference in that, and um, and that was also reflected on the field that um, 
I think the sevens, the women's game wasn't as physically demanding in the past um, because I, I think the fitness level was low. Um, but now that it's full-time professional and that it's an Olympic sport again, that difference has, has diminished rapidly and we've got uh, you know, amazing top-level athletes in both teams now and, and the opposition teams have become similar and so now um, in terms of being the doctor it's actually become more and more similar even in the time that I've been involved and you know one of the more negative consequences of that especially for the females is, is they're getting their injuries are very similar to the men's now they've got big fast powerful players everyone will be looking forward to seeing you know, the male and female um you know for the first time or back of the olympics after you know fairly lengthy absence have you found you in relation to uh, this year more than any other year has anything differed in your preparation or you know in uh not really. I mean, I think <clears throat> I was brought on as part of the NZAU's preparation for the Olympics, and I think this would be like every other union, is that as soon as it became an Olympic sport, um, day zero was the first game of the tournament, and it was counted back from there. So it's not been a yearly thing. It's, for me, it's been a two-and-a-half-year preparation for the Rio Olympics, and obviously there's World Series um, in that, and they are also a goal, but there's been this bigger picture uh, or second schedule which leads to the Olympics so it's just been a continuous preparation and it's um, you know been about developing players and systems and programs to, to make sure that not only do we have a real crack at the year by year competitions but we're also preparing steadily for that for the Olympics and, and so this year's no different really to that except that actually the games are in 80 whatever days or 79 days or whatever it is now. And in terms of um, taking you know, a, group, a group of athletes to Rio, what are the main challenges for you? Well, um, <clears throat> there's a few of them. One, one is that um, it's, it accelerates the development of the opposition, I guess. So what we've seen is that um, countries where it wasn't a priority or as big a priority before it now is so as soon as it's an Olympic sport there's more funding and where there's more funding there's more development and more athletes so a good example would be the United States in the men's game um, who previously weren't as competitive and are now very competitive um, so what we've seen is that um, taking a team to Rio as a result of that there are now less uh, weak games players can't relax you get more injuries because your opponents are bigger stronger faster um, and that's been a major challenge and we've seen our injury rates really go up as a result of that just that increased loading of not having lighter games um, and of, of the, the game itself getting faster and heavier um, Rio specific it's reasonably warm. It's not the hottest place, it's, uh, but you know it's it's warmish, and so that's similar to some of the locations on the World Series. But certainly, we want our athletes uh, to be used to playing, you know, a very high-speed game, wearing a rugby jersey in reasonably hot and significantly humid conditions. So that's one thing, one challenge which we've thought about. Um, from New Zealand, Rio is probably the worst possible time zone. So. It's um, 15 hours behind and nine hours ahead, and that's sort of in that red zone where a lot of your body clock doesn't quite know whether to advance or delay to get there. So it's the hardest or the worst for that aspect of jet lag. So that's been another that's another challenge of Rio from a New Zealand point of view, and that's something quite geographically specific to us and, and I guess the Aussies. 
Um, certainly, there's been a lot of media around the hygiene. That's no different to any other sport. But um, there's that water quality. We're not out on the water, but that water is sprayed on our rugby fields and comes out of the shower head and the tap. And so, you know, as is the case, really, when travelling to a few different destinations, that, that is something where that is a challenge because there's been instances, certainly specifically in rugby in the past, where teams' entire um, campaigns have been spectacularly derailed and there was a World Cup in South Africa where that was the case. Um, and so hygiene is something that we've had a good look at as well. Okay. And for listeners who you know might in the future end up working with teams having to deal with jet lag, what sort of um, practical things do you employ you know, with, with your teams? Yeah, so it's a, it's a, some things are easy. <clears throat> and some things are hard, and um, it's, it's important to remember that jet lag is not just the body clock. So there's probably four different um, aspects to jet lag, and one which gets a lot of attention is the fact that your body clock is is out of um, sync with the daylight cycle of where you arrive, and it's a bit like being seasick, where your inner ear is not corresponding with what you're seeing, and your body just doesn't like it. Second, and, and that causes a lot of the um, features, but also just sleep and the derailment of sleep and the sleep-wake cycle and fatigue is a big part of it. Um, when you've just got off a plane, the internal environment of a plane is a pretty unhappy place for humans and that's a part of it. Um, and the stress around travel is another part of it. So I kind of divide jet lag into four and the thing is that the body clock side of it is a difficult thing to address, but you can get quite high gains by looking at those other three components. So, um, for example, if you look at, um, there's some people, and, and I'm sort of in this camp, who would, who would argue that simply arriving well rested can in the end be more important than trying to um, aggressively adjust your body clock. And I think I've seen some programs in the past where people are getting up at three in the morning and trying to go to bed, you know, in the sort of early evening and trying to adjust their sleep-wake cycle or adjust their body clock um, that way. And in fact, all they end up doing is getting less sleep and arriving tired. So what I rec what I think you can do is um, try to arrive well rested um, and try to reduce the stress of travel and um, with athletes my recommendation would always be it's, when you're flying to a pinnacle event that's not the, the time to try to give your athletes independence and make them responsible for X, Y and Z you want to try and get them there as best as possible so I always recommend that the athlete does as little as possible when they're travelling and that the management take up all the load in an ideal world my athletes would just turn up and walk onto the plane and go to sleep um, and then when you're on the plane um, you know, it's pretty interesting when you look at what's actually happening physiologically when you're flying, and, and one of the big things um, I think is is around desiccation of mucous membranes. So there's a lot of attention paid to dehydration on plants, uh, and and it's one of those pervasive kind of um, well, I think it's an urban myth that that you dry out on the plane. They've done good studies many years ago now to show that you lose about 2% over an 8 hour flight which is the same as if you just sit around watching movies um, uh, or just go through day to day life and they've done that study where they divided people into those three situations so you don't actually dehydrate massively on a plane what does happen is that the air is very dry and there's very high airflow through the cabin and so you desiccate so what that means is your mucous membranes dry out and that makes you feel dry so you feel like you're dehydrated but it's different 
The problem with that though is A, it's unpleasant and you get dry eyes and nose and mouth and um, that's responsible for some of that irritation when you get off the plane, but it also increases your risk of uh, things like upper respiratory tract infection. So a lot of what we try to do is minimising that desiccation. And there's products like Humidiflyers, which is a mouth mask that, that increases the humidity of the air people breathe, um, which are really effective. They look a bit silly and it takes a bit of convincing to get athletes to use them. But if you've got a whole team on, they can be really good. And then using things like eye drops, saline nasal sprays, lip balm, moisturiser, that kind of stuff is actually quite effective and people feel massively better getting off the plane if they've done simple things like that. So that internal environment, it's important to address that part of jet lag as well. And the other part of that internal environment is cramped spacing. So if you have a big team looking at options for, you know, ideally business class, that works well for the internal environment and the sleep. But if you don't have that option, at least exit rows, looking at carriers who have bigger seats because there is a variation, um, and choosing where you put the bigger athletes. So I look at all that stuff and, and just arriving rested, you know, getting people to sleep um, on the plane in um, times of the flight that makes sense so that you just arrive rested because that's a lot easier than trying to adjust the body clock, um, which there's not really a simple approach. Either you go boots and all with the body clock and you get into really in-depth with light and melatonin and exercise and the timing, um, or it's not worth bothering. And actually there's no way to measure body clock. No one yet has done a study <clears throat> where they've measured body clock in the environment that people fly to. It's always simulated flights. And so you can't actually measure the effect of your interventions. Um, and just a couple of other points. It is worth, um, if you are looking at sleep and wake, if you're competing really quickly after you um, arrive, um, it can be useful actually just not to adjust anything at all and just keep sleeping and waking as you would at your origin, so you know, New Zealand for us, um, because if you're going to be competing within a few days of getting off the plane, actually it might be easier not to adjust at all. And that's kind of an increasing tactic and we've seen it a little bit with Super Rugby here in previous years, um, whereas if you're competing a week or two after you get off the plane, you're going to have to bite the bullet and start adjusting. Sorry, a bit long-winded. No, not at all. I think you know the listeners will really appreciate the practical tips. And you know, you've obviously used, especially with your players traveling all over the world, so a really, really good take on points. I think that's good. That'll conclude the podcast. Thanks ever so much for your uh, for your time today. No problem. Um, and it goes without saying, all the best in in Rio. Um, for any listeners wanting to uh, know more about the um, you know rugby sevens, then the, in the most recent IOC issue of the BGSM, there are plenty of articles, some epidemiological. Articles and also um, editorials from the likes of Ross Tucker. Um, likewise, the BGSM will be working hard during the Olympics to stay abreast of the latest injury news. So make sure you're following us on our various social media channels. Um, but otherwise, have a great day and please check back soon for more podcasts. Thank you.